Jason Krebo, who was a, an exceptional player and an exceptional mm-hmm. person, but uh, Jason didn't like to fly, oh. panic on airplanes. <laughs> and for some reason or another, I, I sat across the aisle from Jason on the flight back from West Virginia that night, and as elated as we all were, he was still panicked every time the plane would uh, <laughs> duck or dive or move. And when that would happen, it started me thinking, my God, I've just accomplished one of the greatest things in my life. Am I going to make it home to celebrate? <laughs> so everybody was astonished at the number and nature of people that were on the tarmac at the airport when we pulled in and we piled off the airplane and there were literally hundreds of people there. We then all went downtown Missoula and it was absolute bedlock. Couldn't go anywhere. The streets were filled with people. It was as close to the feeling of being a rock star as I've ever been and probably will never be again and it wasn't necessarily me. Everybody was wanting to see and talk to Dave Dickinson but we all followed in his wake. Welcome to Grizz Greats, the silver anniversary of the 1995 National Champions. I am Coulter Nuanez. You can find this podcast on all of your various podcast hosting platforms. Grizz Greats is presented proudly by ESPN Missoula, First Security Bank of Missoula, and Blackfoot Communications. Grizz Greats is a 25-part podcast series chronicling the 25th anniversary of the University of Montana's 1995 run to the Division I AA National Championship. In this Grizz Greats episode, we feature a local subject, Sean Gokachia. Gokachia hails from Stevensville, Montana, was a standout for the Yellow Jackets before getting an opportunity to play for his basically hometown Montana Grizzlies. Gokachia was a three-year starter at safety was an all-league player as both a junior and senior for the University of Montana. Gokachia also had a brother, Mike Gokachia, who lettered at Montana between 1991 and 1994. And his perspective as someone from the Bitterroot Valley who helped lead the Grizz to the ultimate crown was one that was much appreciated. Without further ado, Grizz Greats, the silver anniversary of the 1995 National Champions, featuring Sean Gokachia. Happy now to be joined on this episode of Grizz Greats, the silver anniversary of the 1995 National Champions by a man who was a junior on the 95 team, thereby a senior on the 96 team, a uh, safety for the Grizzlies, and a Montana born and raised football player, Sean Gokachia. And Sean, thank you so much for being with us. We appreciate you being here and want to start right there. Your roots in the state of Montana and specifically Stevensville, not quite Missoula, but basically by uh, by standards, uh, you know, out of state and all that. You're in the area, and uh, you know, the University of Montana, your kind of hometown school. But take us back because Stevensville, you know, has uh, has you know had some success in football over time, but isn't necessarily a high school football power in this day and age. What was it like playing football down the Bitterroot for Stevensville, you know, there in the, uh, in the late eighties, early nineties? Yeah. Stevensville is definitely one of those schools that has never been consistently a powerhouse. But when I was there, we had a series of four or five years that started with my brother who was two years older than me and, culminated with my senior class uh, going to the state championship, playing out in Sydney two years in a row, trying to knock off Sydney on their 10-year or 11-year-in-a-row run. We didn't succeed, but bottom line is we had a group of kids during that time that attracted a lot of attention because we managed to cobble together a pretty good football team. 
those Sydney teams are, are the stuff of lore, and I feel like the the uh, farther we get away from them, the more they're the, those amazing accomplishments are remembered. When you were going up against those squads, though, I mean, what do you remember? What made Sydney so good back then? You know, it was interesting. I think bottom line is that if you grew up in Sydney during those times and you had a coach like Mike Gear who corralled everybody who had nothing else to do in their free time except work on the ranch or work on the farm and taught them how to play football, they committed to it 12 months a year. That's what made them great. Did you guys have to go to Sydney for a couple of those games? Yeah, we went to Sydney for both of the state championships that I played in, and those uh, those trips to Sydney were tough. You can't, in high school, take a group of kids that far and not have some issues. You're just not used to it. You, you go to Billings and stay in a hotel and drive the rest of the way, and the rest of the way is still four hours. <laughs> right. <laughs> Unbelievable. Some of the road trips. I, th- I remember there was a year, I think, that Sydney actually had to go on the road three times before then ultimately hosting the state championship, but they logged something like 2,500 miles during. Their, yeah, that's amazing. God yeah. bless Montana football, right? That's, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. Well, it's interesting because on this uh, 1995 national championship team, there was a variety of guys from the state of Montana, but very few that were from as close to Missoula as yourself. Do you remember uh, the Grizz having an influence on your love for the game of football when you were a kid? My brother, who's a couple years older than me, went to camps there, and that's where he learned to love Grizzly football, and he brought that home, and of course, little brother did too. When you were looking at, you know, being able to go play football in college, it makes sense that you'd go to the University of Montana and you'd find your way there because it's right there, but obviously the school's got to want you too. What do you remember about the recruiting process such as it was, or what ultimately was it that landed you at Montana? Was there ever any doubt that you were going to go to the University of Montana? You know, it's an interesting question. It was an interesting process because I had uh, a couple things working in my favor in high school. I had a kid that was in my senior class named Joe Cummings. You guys may have heard of him. But he attracted a lot of attention from Pac-10 schools and other big schools because he was a phenomenal player, went on to play at Wyoming and had a 10-year career, I think, in the NFL. So I got a lot of attention because of that that I might not have received otherwise. My brother also had gone to the U of M. Uh, He had gone there two years earlier as a walk-on. So he'd been through the recruiting process and didn't make the cut. Um, They asked him to walk on, and he didn't hesitate for two seconds. So I knew a little bit about the program. He'd been there a year or two. I was lucky enough to get some attention from schools, including the one uh, in central Montana that uh, we don't like to talk about. Uh, they they came in early and recruited me, and I think that uh, that really truly landed more attention by the Grizzlies back then because they knew if the Bobcats were trying to recruit somebody who was already in their player lineage, they wanted to stop that. So Coach Dennehy came down and Coach Reed came down after the Bobcats had offered me a scholarship and you know sat at the table and talked to my parents and after that, uh, my brother came down for a specific visit. I think that was uh, enticed by Coach Reed, and he had to sit down with me and explained all the reasons that it was a bad idea for me to go east of the mountains. Going to the camps is always an interesting thing, too, because you get to experience a little bit at least, taste a little bit the, the coaching style. So was that something that helped you feel more comfortable about ultimately making the decision, the fact that you had 
at least loosely been coached by a couple of these guys before you, you made your, your decision to come to Montana? Yeah, no question. It's a huge thing going to those camps. And like you say, meeting the coaches is more than anything what you get out of those and, and getting some face time with them. I had a lot of face time with Coach Paulson and Coach Reeves. So I knew them pretty well from the two years I'd been to that camp. Actually, three years I'd been to that camp. So that made it much easier. During your time at Stevensville, uh, as many Montana guys are, basically going every which way you possibly can, you know, offense, defense, special teams, multiple sport athlete too. But, but when you first decided, okay, I'm going to go play at Montana, what, what was the ultimate decision like in terms of what side of the ball were you going to play? Was there any opportunity for you to play offensively at Montana or, what, or was it uh, going to be a safety all the way? It was going to be a safety all the way. I had been recruited by some schools as a quarterback, but most of them were recruiting me on the defensive side of the ball. Uh, Coach Dennehy was pretty clear early on that they weren't looking at me as a quarterback, and and that was okay with me. My brother was already there as a safety, so I think that made part of their decision for him. When you first joined the Grizzlies then, First of all, give us some of the impressions of the class you came in with because it's so interesting to me that this this championship team had some outstanding seniors but was largely built on your class. That talented junior class had so many key contributors from the offensive line all the way to the entire defensive side of the ball. I mean, most of the guys that were standout defensively were juniors and sophomores on that team. So uh, what do you remember, though, about your initial impressions of your recruiting class? Did you guys come together? Did you bond pretty early on? Yeah, no question. Many of us bonded early on, and it was, uh, as you know, a very, very tight-knit class. You know, back then, unlike now, everybody gets together on social media and knows everybody before they even show up. Back then, I remember learning who was in my recruiting class, mostly by reading what was in the paper. They list the 12 or 14 or 16 guys in the Missoulian on signing day, and that was it. That's all you. That's all you've got. Some of those guys I knew from Shrine Game and those types of things, or knew from playing basketball, uh, but didn't know exactly who had committed. Uh, so early on, there was a bunch of unknown folks from out of state that you know you just don't know. You're uncertain about, and there's a handful of guys that you already know in state, and you just don't know what that bond's going to be like. But once we got on campus, I think it was pretty clear to most of us during that first year that we had a special group of guys. That bond grew, and it became way more obvious in our sophomore and junior year that this was an extra special group of guys. You know, we spoke to David Sermon, and he said that he thought the 94 team was great, that the 95 team was better, and that the 96 team was better still, and that those three teams are three of the top ten in the history of the program. Do you do you share those sentiments? And, and if so, why do you think it was such a unique and special sort of moment in time in the history of the Grizzly football program? I absolutely share that sentiment. I think the 96 team, and I'm not saying that just because we were seniors, but I, I think that 96 team and the underclassmen we had, you know, absent Dave Dickinson was the most talented team that's been there in a long time. And I think we'd have a second national championship to our name if it wasn't for a guy named Randy Moss. Uh, I can't quite put my finger on why it was that they had such a special three-class run in those three years, or maybe four or five-class run, because there's some overlap. But I think one of the, the undeniable common denominators is Coach Reed. Uh, and, and people wanted to come play for him. 
He was the type of person that would attract talent, but not necessarily kids who leapt off the screen athletically. Uh, he's, he's akin to what they're doing out in Seattle now with the pro team where they bring in these people that nobody thinks are going to be superstars, and the next thing you know, they've blossomed and become superstars. That's the kind of knack that Coach Reed had, and he was in, in the end of his trajectory during that time, so I think I would attribute it mostly to him. Blackfoot Communications is actively supporting the communities we serve across Montana and Idaho. We are installing hundreds of miles of fiber in our service territories, increasing the broadband experience in our rural communities. We are delivering remote workforce solutions for our business communities. We are creating new, innovative solutions for our local entrepreneurs and enterprise organizations. Learn how your company can benefit. Call today at 541-5000 or go to blackfootbusiness.com. Blackfoot Communications can to more. When you first start working your way up then the depth chart, you know, 1993 as a redshirt freshman, uh, you get a little bit of playing time. Then 1994, sort of a breakout year for yourself. I know you weren't quite a starter yet, but uh, piled up a bunch of tackles. I know you were the special teams player of the year for the Grizzlies that year. But what do you remember just about the safety group in general, the defensive back group in, in general? And what was it like playing for the defensive coordinator who also happened to be the secondary coach in Jerome Sowers? I'll start with that last one. Coach Sowers was uh, one of the best coaches I've ever had. He's, he's a wonderful person, wonderful human being, and he's left a lifelong impression on not just me but a whole host of players throughout his career. So I was honored to be able to play for him. Uh, it, it's an amazing thing looking back on it, even more so than when it was actually happening. The group we had in 94, so I came in as a safety, and there were a couple guys who were ahead of me in the depth chart. Uh, one of those guys happened to be a guy I grew up with who, who was my brother. And so when I came into the program, I wasn't sure whether they were going to play me at outside linebacker or safety, and it, it didn't take long for Coach Sowers to come and say, look, are you comfortable competing with your brother? I said, absolutely, we've done it our whole life. So he, you know, next thing I know, I'm in the safety lineup, and eventually work my way ahead of those classmen that are ahead of me and end up in a slot in 1994 right behind my brother, which was both good and bad because, you know, if you have a brother, you know that kind of competition, but at the same time, it's a love-hate deal where you're competing with him, yet he was willing to coach me in a way and help me along that in a way that nobody else would have if they'd have been in front of me. Talk about that process of being helped along because you blossomed into one of the great safeties, you know, that's come through the University of Montana. But you, you talked about the competition and the growth and the coaching that you got. But what was it like to actually, you know, show up there as a, as a freshman and, and, and kind of work through the stages and the progression to get to the point that you got to as a player? It's an interesting trajectory. First, you show up as a freshman, you're scared because you haven't seen people who are that big, that talented, who can run that fast. Then it takes you a little while to realize that you can play with them. You just have to get that through your head. Then you start to bond with those upperclassmen. And we had a group of upperclassmen safeties, including Todd Erickson, Sean Doris, my brother, uh, those kind of people, once you bond with them, once they learn to trust in you, once they realize that you can actually play the game, you know, like everything in family, they're there to pull you along and help you get better. 
Was there an element of pressure being a Montana guy playing safety? Because the the safety position at Montana, especially over the last 30 to 35 years, has had so many tremendous players. But at that moment you mentioned, I mean, from Tim Houck to Todd Erickson, those are two of the most iconic players in Grizz history, a couple of the original number 37s. So do you remember there being sort of a mystique or an allure to play in that position as a guy from Montana for Montana? It was a huge deal, no question. Uh, when we came in as freshmen, uh, Blaine Malcolmray from Troy, who uh, you guys obviously have talked to, who was my roommate at the time, and Blaine and I knew each other a little bit when we got there and got got to be very good friends and remain friends to this day. You know, we came in and looked at it and said, you know, we've got a a lot of not pressure, but we've got a lot of responsibility to carry on this tradition because, just as you point out, the safety position of the defense at the University of Montana has historically had some players that are exceptional. And you don't want to change that. You you said uh, obviously Blaine was your roommate, but wh- what was the group of guys like? You know, and in, in terms of just the you talked about the bond a little bit that you guys ended up developing over time. But what were some of the things that you remember of just you know the coming together and the friendships during that time? You know, everything I've ever been involved in as a team sport before that, you have groups or pods of people that, you know, are close. And you're close with everybody on your team, but there's always a couple guys that you hang out with, uh, whether, you know, with one or two here or there. That group was extra special, and I can't explain why. And it took a year or two to grow into this, but uh, offensively, defensively, didn't matter. Usually there's this offense-defense competition. We, of course, had that, but the group of guys we had in our class bonded across those lines. Dave Kempert was also a roommate of mine in Blaine's, and, uh, you know, we, the three of us, spent lots of times together, but there was a group of uh, four or five defensive guys, Falls, Boucher, Sermon, Thune, Riley, they all lived together in the house, so I think, you know, any given week, three or four days a week, you'd find... 10 or 11 of us there hanging out, doing whatever it is you do in college during the off season, talking football, talking about what the future is going to hold. Tell us about the couple years leading up to 1995. The Grizz, upward momentum to be sure. Playoffs in 1993, but then a sort of a heartbreaking loss, a one-point loss to Delaware in 1994. One of the better, if not the best, run in, in school history to that point going all the way uh, into the playoffs, deep into the playoffs, and then losing at Youngstown State. How do you think those two endings to the seasons sort of set the stage for the motivation and just the the climate surrounding the team entering 1995? It was a huge deal. Uh, I'm a big believer now, and I, I didn't realize it then, but I think it's true that you know your failures are the only thing that can bring you true success. If you don't have experiences like that, particularly as a young, talented uh, class with a lot of depth that we were, the underclassmen, if you don't have those experiences where you watch those guys lose, you watch those guys lose their last game, and you know how that feels, it drives you, it drove us, no, no question, to be better, and it drove us to be ultimately a more complete football team. Grizz Greats, the silver anniversary of the 1995 National Champions, is sponsored by First Security Bank and Coulter. While First Security has long been a supporter of the University of Montana and UM Athletics, people might be surprised to know how much First Security Bank, in fact, influenced the University of Montana program and the path they were on directly. 
Back in 1993, the Grizz were on their way to their second ever berth in the Division One AA playoffs. Previously, in 1989, the only other time Montana had made it to the Division One AA playoffs, and at that time, first round home games awarded via a bidding process. And so, to help support the Grizz football team as well as fortify the faith throughout the community of Missoula, Bill Boucher, former president of First Security Bank, stepped up to the table to help the University of Montana guarantee any potential revenue lost for the first round of the playoffs. And of course, that was recouped in a big way as the University of Montana in 1993 then started the first of 17 straight playoff berths. And in 1995, that local optimism was turned into national prominence as Montana made a run all the way to the 1995 National Championship. First Security Bank is proud to sponsor Grizz Greats and this 25-part podcast series commemorating the silver anniversary of the 1995 National Champions for Security Bank a proud supporter of Grizz Athletics and the University of Montana. So going into the 95 season, uh, we've asked a lot of guys kind of what they thought about the team going into it. I know there was confidence in that, but I guess maybe what I want to ask is during the course of that season, particularly the regular season, what stood out to you as maybe the most important moments, games, uh, you know, memories, that that sort of put this team on the track to go where it went? I would say to start out that season, definitely Boise State. Uh, we had been down to Boise the year before, and they put it to us, and they talked a lot about it. And I think uh, there was some after-game incidents where they were taunting Coach Reed as he went to the press conference. I know that stuck with him. He talked about it a lot. We all remembered that. So when Boise came to Missoula that year, it was a big deal. And Coach Reed started talking about Boise State before we even played our first game that year. Uh, When we showed up on that Saturday and handled Boise State, I think it was the first time we all looked at each other and said, okay, this is a special team that can do special things. Uh, And then, you know, mid-season, I think the turning point for us was the loss at Idaho. That was a significant game for us. The defense had been, I won't say so-so, but not up to par with the offense throughout the early part of the season. We'd given up more points. We we show up at Idaho, and in the first half, I don't remember how many points they scored, but it was a lot, and we had zero answers for them. And we didn't end up winning that game. It was closer at the end, but we had no answers. And I'll never forget that Sunday morning when I showed up in Coach Sauer's office to talk to him. I expected him to be frustrated and angry, but he wasn't. He looked across his desk at me and he said, you know, Gok, he said, some days you eat the bear and some days the bear eats you. And if you survive it, you uh, should learn something from it. And I think we're going to survive this, and I think we're going to learn something from it. And he was 100% correct because that game changed the course of the season, no question. No losses from that point. Man, I love Jerome Sars. I miss that guy. I wish we could still talk to him. I used to get to talk to him once a week, and, man, he's such a good storyteller, such a such a, uh, a good guy to listen to on, on all fronts. Uh, but, Sean, I want to ask you about yourself personally coming into that 1995 season because I'm looking at the media guide now and was reading a little bit about uh, the offseason for you, and it mentioned that you put on maybe 15 to 20 pounds that offseason. What sort of work did that take, and how did that prepare you then for your first year as a starter? 
you know, it took a, quite a bit of work, but it was one of those things where we all spent a lot of time in the weight room, but that was one of the first summers that I had actually stayed in Missoula 100% full-time and committed to hitting the, hitting the gym every day and working out with the people who were there, which makes a huge difference. Uh, so to me, that, that gave me the ability to uh, put on that weight. Uh, turns out when I got to camp, it was maybe five pounds too many, so I had to shed it a little bit to to not lose the speed that it takes to play safety. Um, but, yeah, it, it gave us a, you know, the summer workouts gave us a step into that season uh, that were, you know, a step up than the previous seasons. We'd all, not all of us, many guys went home, but there were a bunch of us that worked out there together, and it was like nobody ever left. And I want to ask you about the Boise State and Idaho angles as well because I think that, you know, right now in the state of Montana – it's basically a borderline life or death situation. We talk about the Bobcat Grizzly game or the Grizzly Bobcat game, whichever way you want to call it. But the Bobcats were not the only rival, and in fact, probably not even the fiercest rival of Montana at that exact time. We've talked to a lot of guys. I mean, it's like Blade McElmurray told us. He said, "Hey, you know, we want to beat the Cats. I like, I respect the Cats, but damn, I hate Idaho." So, tell us about just the, the feelings amongst the players. Uh, both for Boise State and Idaho, because I think that those were rivalries that were so um, paramount back then, but then this obviously faded with both of those teams leaving the league right after this 95 year. Yeah, it's it's for sure true. Those were rivalries. They've been rival, rival games for the last several years, and it had built to this crescendo of a cross-border war between us and them. For me, it was more interesting, too, because my parents and, and their families are from southern Idaho. Both of them were vandals, uh, both graduated from University of Idaho. So when we went over there, it was old home week for them. So it meant a lot at our house to beat Idaho. And when we got pounded by them in 95, uh, it was extra hard for me because we heard about it from family and friends and everybody else. You get into the postseason and you go on a run and you talked about the defense maybe not being not hitting on all cylinders early well you couldn't hit on more cylinders than you did in those three games leading up to the national championship how much uh, uh how, how important was not just the wins but the way that you won especially defensively given what transpired in the national championship in which really at the end of the day it was a defensive football game that national championship was it was and those three games leading up to it were huge um, like I said, we had been a little hit and miss at times on the defensive side of the ball. Dickey and the offense were putting up a lot of points and, and you know, racking up a lot of yards, but we, I didn't feel like we were doing as, what our fair share of the, uh, the equation. When we roll into the playoffs, something switched, and every sports team knows what it is to peak, and we definitely peaked, and we peaked at the right time, and if we'd have peaked earlier, it would have been a problem, but, but the defense for sure peaked at that time, and it made a huge difference right up to you know that, that Saturday in December in Huntington, West Virginia, because without, without the defense, as we all know that day, it would have been a different story. You mentioned that Idaho game being um, a turning point for you guys, but then down the stretch of the regular season and then into those playoff games, what specifically defensively started clicking. I mean, what what helped you guys reach the level where then all of a sudden you're pitching multiple shutouts in the playoffs? I think it was just a mindset. We had all the pieces. We just had not hit on all cylinders at once. And when we hit the first playoff game, 
we proved that we could do it, and then we realized we're going to have to play Georgia Southern, and that one, I think, scared us a little bit because we had fallen victim to that wing T type of offense uh, against Delaware, as you pointed out, a few years earlier. And we knew that was going to be a challenge for us because we just didn't play against those teams very often. But the coaching staff had a plan. Uh, we focused on the plan and we executed. And once we, once we, you know, did what we did to Georgia Southern, we were convinced as a defense that we can stop anybody. Blackfoot Communications is actively supporting the communities we serve across Montana and Idaho. We are installing hundreds of miles of fiber in our service territories, increasing the broadband experience in our rural communities. We are delivering remote workforce solutions for our business communities. We are creating new, innovative solutions for our local entrepreneurs and enterprise organizations. Learn how your company can benefit. Call today at 541-5000 or go to blackfootbusiness.com. Blackfoot Communications. Connect to more. You go to Huntington, West Virginia, but you play Marshall in the national championship in a de facto road game. What is your most vivid memory of the game itself? I would definitely say the last minute or so. Um, you know, there's a lot of things that jump out in that game to me, but my most vivid memory is that last minute thinking to myself, okay, we've kept this close enough that we've got a chance to win it. And when Dickie hit Earhart on the slant route, and I knew then we had a chance to kick this field goal, uh, it clicked. It, it all just clicked, and I thought for the first time the whole day that, you know, we, we actually are in a position to do this. And when you did do it, what what was the aftermath like? What do you remember about you know the rush in the field, being on the field, locker room, all that kind of thing? You know, it's like a lot of those experiences in your life. You a lot of it is fuzzy because there's so much adrenaline. But I, I remember vividly Coach Reed talking to us on the field. I remember vividly, you know the players getting together on the field and talking about what we had accomplished and, and commenting and that, you know, this is something that this state has really never seen. I know there've been some other championships in this state, but not, not at that level. And, uh, you know, it was just starting to sink in for us and it was a culmination of a whole bunch of dedication and work and effort. When you look at, you know, especially as a guy from the area, from Western Montana, going there, still lives in Western Montana, the arc of sports at the University of Montana, which had been really for a very long time basketball-oriented, became football-oriented, and maybe in no small part because of that season and that national championship. What do you think of that, of that, of that shift, or at least the growth, I guess, of football as a, as a matter of fandom for Grizz Nation? You know, I think there's no doubt that that whole season put Montana football on the national map. You know, we were a little bit on the national map before that. It's an exceptional place to play. There's no doubt about that. Uh, I think a lot of kids come there to play football, and football is known there because of the the fan base and, and the atmosphere. But that championship took it to a whole different level. And not to say that we're responsible for it, but there's a whole bunch of kids that have been in that program since 
that probably never would have been there if it wouldn't have been for that early success in 1995. Like you say, a lot of times when you experience these pivotal moments that are just so fueled by emotion and adrenaline, uh, the memories get fuzzy. But I, I'm sure then once it started to sink in, the accomplishment of what you guys had had done what what you were bringing back home to montana what do you remember about just after the game but mostly then when you get back to missoula and just the the hours and days and weeks uh when you just got to basically revel in the glory of being a national champion yeah a couple of my biggest memories were um well first and foremost you guys have probably talked to jason Krebo, who was a, an exceptional player and an exceptional mm-hmm. person but uh, Jason didn't like to fly. He oh, would wow. panic on airplanes. <laughs> and uh, on, for some reason or another, I, I sat across the aisle from Jason on the flight back from West Virginia that night. And as elated as we all were, he was still panicked every time the plane would uh, <laughs> duck or dive or move. And when that would happen, it started me thinking, my God, I've just accomplished one of the greatest things in my life. Am I going to make it home to celebrate? <laughs> so, so that's a memory that actually sticks in my mind. But of course, we made it. And everybody uh, was astonished at the number and nature of people that were on the tarmac at the airport when we pulled in and we piled off the airplane, and there were literally hundreds of people there. Uh, We then all went downtown Missoula, and it was absolute bedlam. Uh, You couldn't go anywhere. The streets were filled with people. It was as close to the feeling of being a rock star as I've ever been and probably will never be again, and it wasn't necessarily me. Everybody was wanting to see and talk to Dave Dickinson, but we all followed in his wake. Coulter, in 1993, the Grizz football team was looking to host its first playoff game of the decade and just its second season of playoffs in school history. As we know, you got to have some financial backing to guarantee a home game. And former First Security Bank president Bill Boucher stepped up, spearheading a group of local business owners to guarantee that bid for UM Athletics. And that commitment from First Security Bank to UM has never wavered. Bill Boucher, Gordy Fix. Several other business owners around the city of Missoula certainly had a huge influence in stepping up. Certainly some of the first true believers in what Grizz football could become and what they could mean to the Missoula community. Two years later, in 1995, the University of Montana had turned that local optimism into national prominence. The Grizz won the Division I AA National Championship, the first national title in the history of the university. And 25 years later, First Security Bank is still proud to sponsor the Grizzlies. First Security Bank, a presenting sponsor for Grizz Greats, the silver anniversary of the 1995 National Champions, a 25-part podcast series remembering that epic 1995 season. First Security Bank, proud sponsor of Grizz Athletics and the University of Montana. One of the most awesome parts, too, about being from small-town Montana is just how much the communities rally behind the guys from there. Do you remember the first time you went back down to Stevensville? I do. And it's funny you say that because little towns operate this way. When you, when I rolled into Stevensville, I can't remember when it was, but I, you turn off the highway there at what we call the Y, and you turn off the, at the Y, and the gas station there had a big billboard that was congratulating us on the national championship, and it specifically congratulated me. And I thought, wow, that's interesting that somebody would pay attention. And I turned and I drove through town and there was probably five or six other signs that were 
doing the same thing and and it hit me that it, it was a big deal that had spread statewide not not just Missoula not just the University of Montana the entire state was wrapped around this thing in a significant way you know one thing I'm interested in the dynamics of the group and we talked about that before in in the context of the season or of your career at the University of Montana but if you look at the list of the guys on that team and what they've accomplished in their lives and what they're up to obviously Dave you know with the professional career in Canada but other guys have gone on to become uh, uh, you know doctors PhD academics yourself one of a number of lawyers and law guys how big a foundation was the group to what then sort of launched all these individuals going to these different places, but almost without exception to, to great heights and whatever it was that they were pursuing? Yeah, it's a great question, and I'll, I'll just go back to when I first started in that program. Uh, Coach Reed would do these Sunday afternoon meetings all of the time, uh, and you know he'd He'd talk about the next week, and then during some of those meetings, he would bring in Father Jim Hogan, who was one of the Catholic priests there that he was very close with. Father Jim would talk to us uh, frequently on game day, and he would travel with us. And, and he had a saying that he, he would often remind us. And I think it's just a blunt answer to the question you just asked. And his saying, which I literally have framed in my office still to this day, uh, he would say, listen, excellence is not a moment in time. It's a way of life. And I think that truly captures everything about that team and my class in particular. Uh, each and every person that were there uh, had lived excellence, and they exuded it on the football field. They did not come there as superstars. We had very few guys who leapt off the page athletically. There were certainly some, but most of us were more player development kind of people. But through commitment and hard work and dedication to the game and each other and just living a life of excellence, as Father Hogan would continually remind us, uh, we accomplished what we did. And that is a character trait that carries on through your life. So I think that explains a lot of why the people are where they're at doing what they're doing to this day. And for you personally, you stuck around and, and did go to law school at the University of Montana, graduated there. What drew you to law? You know, I had some family members. My, my wife's cousin was a lawyer at that time. But I also realized about halfway through undergrad that you know, my focus in life was football at that time, and I realized that for me probably would end as a senior, and I got to figure out what to do with my life. And you have some of those you know, times where you say, gee, what do I want to do? I realized pretty early that I didn't want to leave this state for obvious reasons, and I started looking for ways to you know, further my education in a way that could allow me to stay in Montana, and I was successful in that. Blackfoot Communications is actively supporting the communities we serve across Montana and Idaho. We are installing hundreds of miles of fiber in our service territories, increasing the broadband experience in our rural communities. We are delivering remote workforce solutions for our business communities. We are creating new, innovative solutions for our local entrepreneurs and enterprise organizations. Learn how your company can benefit. Call today at 541-5000 or go to blackfootbusiness.com. Blackfoot Communications. Connect to more. We talked about Coach Sowers, and I've always uh, hit it off with him because he is such an interesting guy to listen to talk. But 
talking to all of you guys now, when I mean, we've caught up with close to 30 people that were involved in this, this 1995 run, and you guys all share this distinctly um, specific intellect. Do you remember that from back when you were young men too? I mean, w- was this a particularly intellectual group of guys? No question. And it was obvious, I won't say from day one, because it took us a while to get to know some of the guys who were out of state or we weren't that familiar with. And a few guys came and went, but no question, that that permeated the group. And it's what drew us together. It's what kept us together. Uh, I think there's no question about that. Well, it's what's what's made this podcast series so great because all of you guys are such good speakers too. I mean, the articulate nature of everybody is <laughs> is uh, it, it's pretty it's pretty fun. It's pretty cool. Well, it's great that you guys are doing this, and I I think on behalf of all of us, I will say that it's wonderful that you're helping keep this alive. It's a big deal for us, of course, but I think it's also something that the state. Uh, in a time like this, especially, need something to look back on and have fond memories of. Well, no question. Well, when you when you look back on this, then Sean, you you told us all these stories of all your memories. But have you have you considered just the impact that this accomplishment as a young man had on your life now, twenty five years later? No question. Absolutely. Uh, I have thought about it many, many times. It's the kind of thing that is the proverbial life fork in the road. And if you go this direction, your life likely ends up dramatically different. Uh, I won't say it's completely different, but for sure it has opened up opportunities for me that never would have been there otherwise. And those have led to other opportunities, including where I'm sitting today is probably the result of you know, just being on that team and someone being familiar with me to uh, allow me to have a clerkship, to allow me then to get certain jobs and, and move through this profession. Well, Sean, we very much appreciate you taking the time out and reflecting on, on your time at the University of Montana, obviously that 95 season, and also just in general, uh, the Montana way of life. Thank you so much for being with us. Yeah, I appreciate it, and thank you guys for doing this again. Grizz Greats, the silver anniversary of the 1995 National Champions podcast series, commemorates Montana's epic run to its first national crown. Now, you have a chance to own a piece of history by purchasing a custom piece of art specifically commissioned to accompanying this epic archiving of history. One-of-a-kind painting features Hall of Fame quarterback Dave Dickinson, legendary Grizz head coach Don Reed, and Andy Larson, the Helena native who drilled the game-winning kick to lift Montana to a 22-20 victory over Marshall on December 16, 19. Secure this limited edition work of art while supplies last to ensure no Grizz fan ever forgets that historic moment. To purchase number 195 championship, a one-of-a-kind painting by former Grizz wide receiver Ryan Bagley, visit rbagley3.com or check out grizzgreats.com and click on the link or you can visit the ESPN Missoula Facebook page for more information. From full-size canvases that are professionally framed to prints, hooded sweatshirts, and t-shirts, don't miss your chance to get this one-of-a-kind painting by a Montana artist for the great people of Montana. Visit rbagley3.com or grizzgreats.com to make your purchase today.
Thank you for listening to Grizz Greats, the silver anniversary of the 1995 National Champions. Grizz Greats is available on all of your podcasting platforms, whether you use Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Transistor. Please rate, review, subscribe, and share. To find all the Grizz Greats, you can just search Grizz Greats on your platforms, or you can visit grizzgreats.com or 1029ESPN.com and click on the podcast tab. Chris Greats is proudly presented by Blackfoot Communications and First Security Bank of Missoula.